right. Going to be in John chapter 18, and we'll be picking it up in verse 28. It's only 12 verses in this passage, but there's actually quite a bit to unpack here. And I don't usually do this, but I gave this sermon the title before uh, I preached it. Usually that comes after for me, but I think the title kind of talks about what we are going to talk about in this text, and it's really three things. Irony, sovereignty, and the kingdom of Jesus. Irony, sovereignty, and the kingdom of Jesus. And these are the themes that run throughout this passage. They, they come up repeatedly. And you see the first one begin to unfold right here in verse 28. Let's look at it. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. So Caiaphas, of course, is the, the high priest, very corrupt person that we've been talking about in the last few weeks. The governor's headquart, uh, head, headquarters is, of course, that of Pilate, and it was basically kind of an outpost. This is not where he spent most of his time, but when they would have these big feasts and so on, they would be close by and set up shop there to quell any riots that might pop up. And so in this early morning, which is debatable, it's probably somewhere between 6 and 11 a.m. on exactly what time it is, the following things begin to happen. And the next verse gives us some of the unbelievable irony here. Look at this. It says, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. And who the they is there is, is talking about the group of people that were fully committed at this point to Jesus' demise. They, ironically, are doing everything they can to not be defiled in light of the ceremonial law by not going inside of Pilate's headquarters. For a devout Jew, if you went into this kind of person, uh, uh, a Gentile's house, they would be defiled. But at the very same time, while they are being so observant on that front, they are thoroughly and completely committed to seeing Jesus killed. And therein lies the first point, that the irony in this situation is almost unbelievable. And I think there's two ways we need to look at this. On the one hand, we need to look at this just for the surface of the text and say, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is a depth of evil that you don't see every day. And at the same time, we would be very wise, as C.S. Lewis taught us, to pay attention to our own inner cesspool. That's what he said. The mature Christian always has one nostril turned toward his own inner cesspool. And while we look at the egregious sin in their lives, we need to be cautious of the sin and the irony and the hypocrisy in our own lives. Now, hopefully for most of us, it does not rise to this degree, but we all have it in small ways. And so I think that just seeing this on display in them should turn the camera toward us just a bit and cause two things to happen. Number one, some real humility. And number two, some real gratitude. That apart from the grace of God at work in our lives, would we not be doing something like this? It is, but for the grace of God, we would be on some kind of destructive path. But Pilate's willing to play ball with these guys here. 
And it says, so Pilate went outside to them to honor their beliefs. And he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And what this question does is it formally opens the Roman civil phase of proceedings against Jesus. It had been primarily religious up to this point, but now we are driving in a different lane, so to speak. And obviously he knew somewhat about this because he'd sent out some soldiers to grab him in the garden and so on. But the fact that he is going down this path, you'll see this again in just a moment, is, is he's going to do his best to not adjudicate this matter. He's going to do his best to not have to deal with Jesus in this situation. But at this point, he has no choice. And what's interesting, if you follow this thread throughout the whole passage and actually into uh, chapter 19 as well, there's all this back and forth where he goes out and he speaks to them. Then he goes inside and he talks to Jesus and then back to them and back and forth. And a lot of <coughs> kind of the significant things that he and Jesus engage on here happen almost backstage if this were some type of theatrical production. But they answer him. They answer his question. And they said, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So basically, Pilate, we're not wasting your time. If he wasn't up to no good, we wouldn't all be standing here talking about this. And so what does Pilate do? He says, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Again, he wants nothing to do to this. But watch their response. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, this is important history here. Because when Rome took over Judea and they began to direct rule through a prefect, they took away the right to execute from the Jewish people. Now, there's a couple of exceptions to this. Uh, Stephen, you see in the book of Acts, that was basically mob violence. And the only other time they could kind of pull off something outside of Rome with an execution would be where the, the leadership was weak. But obviously they had things in hand there. So they had to work through this Roman prefect in order to get what they wanted, which was the death of Jesus. But what's going to become very important is that all of this, and even this, is right in the hand of Jesus and him working out his sovereign plan. But it does also present somewhat of an interesting historical dilemma here for Pilate because he would not have been interested, as we already said, but part of why he wasn't interested, let's put it that way, was because he viewed this primarily, at least at this point, as a religious matter. He doesn't want to get involved in this on multiple levels. And so what they had decided to do to kind of give it some sense of legitimacy to, to force his hand was to say that Jesus was claiming to be king. And so now they're driving in the political lane. Oh, this is, a, this is an insurrection. He's coming against Rome, so on and so forth. You must act. But I love what John says right after this because it's more than just ancient politics that is taking place here. It says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death that he was going to die. Now, this is very interesting. It, it harkens back to the, the language that you see where uh, it talks about Peter. When Jesus talks about the type of death that he is going to die. Similar wording uh, also in uh, John chapter 12 uh, where, where Jesus talks about himself. But what Jesus had said 
was that he was going to die by being lifted up. And what he's talking about there is the crucifixion. And what's really interesting here is that that would not have been the typical way that Jews would have executed somebody. They would have executed someone by stoning, which is what happened to Stephen that you see recorded in the book of Acts. But Caiaphas had in his mind it needs to go this way, and we're going to go through Rome to get what we want because of the connection in the Old Testament about what it means when someone was crucified. There's a principle in Deuteronomy 21, 23 that says a hanged man is cursed by God. And hanging and crucifixion were basically interchangeable at this point. And so what Caiaphas was thinking here in his mind, and it's unclear if he had forgotten what Jesus had said, that he prophesied this was going to be the way he was going to go out, or if he just didn't care, or if he thought his plan was stronger. We don't know why he did this, but he was on this path driving toward the type of death that would give him the opposite result. He's wanting to defame Jesus and say, this guy could not be the Messiah. Look at this nonsense. He would never go out like that. And yet it fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus himself made. To the letter to the exact detail. And therein lies our second principle. And that is that God's sovereignty extended even to the kind of death that Jesus would die. So it wasn't just that Jesus would die and raise, but he would die and he would die in this way. He would take what was the ultimate sign of humiliation and ultimately be raised after that humiliation to glory. He would undo what Caiaphas and the, the enemy was trying to do. And friends, that kind of direct, powerful sovereignty on display should be a help to us. It should remind us that the Bible is true. It should remind us that God can be trusted. It should remind us that no matter how out there it gets in our lives, how crazy it seems, how lost the plot our life seems to look like, that God is still in control. No matter how bad it gets, God is still in control. And pieces like this of God's providence on display are a continual reminder of that for us. You know, I've been thinking about how often I've kind of pointed that out, and as we come through the rest of the book here, I'll continue to point it out because it's just everywhere. And one of the reasons I do that, obviously, is because it's obvious in the text, but another reason I do that is pastorally. Something I picked up from John Piper years and years and years ago is he said that he preached the sovereignty of God as often as he could so that people would be ready when they really needed it. When something unexpected happened. When somebody died. When a church member died. That there would be a robust culture of understanding of the sovereignty and the providence and the kindness of God at work within the bones of the church, if you will. So that they could hold the weight of life in a fallen world. And so that's part of why I pointed out. And my encouragement to you would be to do the same with your kids. This has borne so much fruit for Team Neely in the two decades that we've had them in our home. 
of being able to point out, the Lord is at work in this. The Lord has a plan in this. We don't understand it. Quite frankly, this is really bad. But God is in control, and we trust him in the midst of this. And yet again, even down to the direct method of his execution, Jesus was in control. Now, jump back in here with me. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said, and I'm going to emphasize this the way I think the Greek lays this out here, are you the king of the Jews? And all four of the Gospels, the you here is emphatic. And even though it's a legal question, it's a, what one commentator called an incredulous exclamation. Are you the king of the Jews? You? Already beaten up, already dragged up here by all these people? Are, are, are you serious? And right in the midst of this, I want you to look at what Jesus does. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's turning the tables on. He's saying, okay, but what do you say? Imagine the drama in the moment when he said that. That it's just he and Pilate talking. I'm sure there's hundreds of people standing around, maybe in the back parts of this room where they're having this conversation. But he is talking directly to Pilate. And he's saying, what do you make of me? Who do you say that I am? Pilate, of course, answers like this. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can almost hear him blustering this out. But this veritable smokescreen here was ineffective, and Jesus continues to press, and he says this. He answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And so therein lies our next principle. And that is that the nature of Jesus' kingdom is completely different from the kingdoms of this world. Now, let's unpack this to the degree that we can here. So, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that his kingdom is ineffective in this world. He's not saying that it is disconnected to the degree that none of this matters. We know from other places in the Bible the exact opposite is true. Jesus cares about every single second everything in this world but what he's saying is his power and his authority is not rooted here it's beyond this and on top of that he uses this example he said if my kingdom was rooted from derived from this world then my servants and he's obviously talking about here when they came to get him in Gethsemane they would have risen up and they would have fought and they would have seen to it that Jesus escaped to fight another day and so on and so forth but but what happened there that we learned he allowed himself to be given over and when peter whacked off that guy's ear what did jesus do he picked it up and he put it back on his head and healed him so he was showing a complete counter kingdom to the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of pilate John Calvin said it like this. He said, Christ's kingdom is spiritual, and it must be founded on the teaching and power of the Spirit. It must be built up in the same way, for neither human laws and edicts nor human punishments reach the conscience. 
However, the depravity of this world causes Christ's kingdom to be established more by the blood of martyrs than by the force of arms. A lot of wisdom in that. And you think about how the church has advanced effectively and authentically throughout history. It's not at sword, sword point, trust Jesus or I kill you. It's through men and women laying down their lives so that the gospel would be preached. Jesus' kingdom is literally out of this world. It is not like what happens here. Now, I also think there is some further irony on display here. Again, it runs through the entire passage, but Priest's word was very helpful here in pointing out just the stark contrast between the way Pilate would have operated and the way Jesus would have operated. Pilate would have done anything to receive power, honor, and glory, and Jesus willingly gave his up. Pilate valued only what he could taste, touch, and feel, and Jesus lived and taught that we should not lay up for ourselves riches on this earth. Pilate ruled by material manipulation, and Jesus lamented that you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves, John 6. Pilate was arrayed in royal robes. Jesus had no other form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53. So in every way possible, we see this juxtaposition in what you might call kingdoms in conflict. And is that not true in the way that we live? You don't have to live your faith for more than five minutes to see kingdoms in conflict. There are a few times where things actually line up, but most often your ethics, the way you think about sanctity of life issues, the way you parent, the way you manage money, the way that we think about gender identity, all the different things in this world are often at odds with the kingdom of the world that is ultimately passing away. I know we've talked a lot about this as a family, and particularly when they've been teenagers. I'm like, there's times when you do indeed feel out of step. Because if you were completely in step, based on where we're at as a culture, that would mean it's not going well. Something's not right if everybody always thinks that what you do and what you say and what you think is awesome. If it's always that way, it means that we have been so conformed to the kingdom of this world that we don't even see it. So there is naturally some kingdom conflict that happens as we live out our faith. Now, I don't think that means that we take to the street and riot and seek to you know cram Jesus down people's throats but at the same time we need to be well thoughtful that there will be natural conflict to think of it in computer terms our operating system for life is completely different from the operating system of the world so this natural out of stepness that we feel at times is an evidence of what Jesus is saying right here, that his kingdom is not from the world. Well, let me give you some good news about this. I'd much rather be a part of his kingdom. Because how is it going for the kingdoms of this world? 
How is it going in any nation that you want to look at? If the compass is not set to Jesus as the true north, there is going to be massive problems, massive inequality, massive difficulty. And even when it's set to Jesus, we're still going to have some of that in the fallen world. But friends, we live toward the kingdom that is to come. We are ultimately citizens of an eternal kingdom that will not pass away like the kingdoms of this world. That is not temporary. It is eternal. And so we live and struggle and also at the same time oddly experience great joy and great life in this world knowing that even at its best it is but a shadow of that which is to come of the kingdom that will endure forever. So as you experience that conflict, let me give you this. Take heart. Take heart. This world is not your home. This kingdom is not your kingdom. Jesus is with you and for you, and your church is alongside you, and he's given you his word, and he's put his spirit within you so that you might endure and so that you might make a real and lasting difference as you live out the values of this other kingdom, the one that will last forever. Now back in verse 35, Pilate says this. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, well, you, you say that I a king. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus is talking a little bit about his mission here, as he's done so many times. Everyone who is in the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, there's some debate on exactly how to understand what he's saying, but let me give you the final analysis. No matter exactly how you interpret this, this is tragic. Because it shows that, at least at this point, Pilate clearly does not get Jesus. He doesn't get the gospel. And what it seems to be is that it's some kind of cynical response, kind of like what Aaron talked about two weeks ago, that he's either saying that he doesn't believe in truth, like as an ontological concept, or he is saying that he thinks Jesus is basically just a philosopher. And again, why am I even involved in this? That could be part of what Pilate is saying there. But no matter what it means in detail, what it is obvious is that he doesn't know Jesus and that he is about to dispense with Jesus in the most tragic way possible. I think it's also worth noting here from a literary standpoint, this is yet another example of the intense irony in this passage because here he is waxing on about whether or not truth is real and he literally has the embodiment of truth in front of him. What is it that Jesus said about himself? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's truth embodied standing in front of him, and he doesn't see it. So apparently he does decide, I either can't solve this problem or he's not a problem that I want to deal with. And it says, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews 
And he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you <coughs> at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now there's a whole lot in this, and I'll make this brief. But basically what he's doing here is he is looking yet again for another way out. It's possible, uh, at least from what the other gospels seem to indicate to us, that part of the reason he doesn't want to deal with Jesus because his wife Claudia had a dream about him and he was very concerned about that dream. John doesn't get into that, but the other gospels do. It, it could be that he really is perplexed. It could be that he just doesn't want to deal with any more trouble that day. We don't know exactly. But what I do think he's doing here by bringing up this custom, which he, he kind of gives the explanation there. There was a custom that at once a year at Passover, it was uh, symbolic of, of God delivering his people in the Old Testament from, Israel, uh, uh, from Egyptian bondage, that they would free a prisoner and basically say, hey, we're, we're letting this guy go just like you know, God delivered you guys back in the day. And I think from the way I read this here, that he really was thinking, well, goodness, they're going to choose Jesus. I mean, what's this guy guilty of? I mean, really? And then he chooses Barabbas. It, uh, there couldn't be a more stark contrast. And what's interesting here, this word robber, uh, I think we all know what a robber is, one who steals things, but it's possible that within the uh, kind of the lexical circle of this word, it could mean basically insurrectionist or terrorist uh, or someone who tried to repeatedly uh, overthrow the, their government. And uh, history tells us this guy was, he was a bad guy, guilty of many, many crimes. And so the, con the, the, the contrast between the two could not be more stark. And he is assuming that they are going to choose Jesus. And look back at it again. Not this man, but Barabbas. That's crazy. That is crazy. But again, I think we need to respond to this kind of like we respond to what we saw at the beginning of the passage. It's interesting. In this little 12-verse pericope, John kind of takes us on a on a journey where he kind of starts and ends in the same place, that we need to look at this, and we do need to be horrified, but we also need to see the sin in our own hearts. That we, in some way, are the crowd that cried out for Barabbas and not Jesus. And apart from the grace of God, would we not still be in that place? But even further than that, are we not also Barabbas? Now, again, this is the thing about the text here. He's a real person in real time and space. But if we look at this and we don't see some pointer to ourselves, this text is not having its full effect on us. And that's the final thing I want to point out here today. That though we are like Barabbas, we too have also had Jesus die in our place. I mean, you think about the drama in that moment in Barabbas' life. 
I mean, here's the guy who, I, I mean, I guess at this point when you're locked up and you're just a few days from your execution, you probably are starting to take stock of what you've done. I mean, I know people, they, they try to act real hard, and, and some do all the way to the end, but most people, the weight of their sin catches up to them at some point. That was probably taking place in Barabbas' life. And here comes this news. Matthew really details this. You should go home and read this, Matthew, uh, Matthew 27. Th to think about the craziness of this crowd, them crying for Jesus to be crucified, and then here's this guy, completely and obviously guilty, who is let go. Friends, is that not a picture of the gospel? Donald Gray Barnhouse says it like this. He says, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God that it should be poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. And yet he was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sin. That's why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Jesus was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That's why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. And there is nothing left for me but his heaven. So friends, in the midst of seeing the bad news that we're like this crowd and we're like Barabbas, friends, we must even more clearly see the goodness of God and the grace of God upon us. I'm reminded again of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says this, that God made him to be, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 adds, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus took our place though we were Barabbas. And I think in light of everything we've learned in this passage, all the good reminders about the providence of God and the literary interestingness here of the irony and so on and so forth, that the greatest effect that I hope this passage has on you and on me is that it leads us into a place of gospel wonder and gospel amazement and overwhelming worship and gratitude. That while we were yet Barabbas, Christ died for us. Friends, just let that wash over you. Let that help you. Let that cause you to be drawn to Jesus in a new and fresh way. Let that call to you to bring your darkness out into the light so that it may be cleansed. Let that help you.
Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for this passage. We are thankful for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we're thankful for the Bible, that every time we look at it, even if we hear things that we may already know, we learn new things. It is a well that never can be fully explained. And Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit tonight that you would write this truth on our hearts and that we would indeed feel your love, that we would experience your mercy anew and afresh, that we would feel your power and your presence in this room, in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our struggle against sin, in the victories that we celebrate. And Lord, that we would see that you took our place. That though we were guilty, our guilt was placed upon you and we have gone free. Lord, thank you. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus.